I'm Dr. Nathaniel Chin, and you're listening to Dementia Matters, a podcast about Alzheimer's disease. Dementia Matters is a production of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Our goal is to educate listeners on the latest news in Alzheimer's disease research and caregiver strategies. Thanks for joining us. My guest today in Dementia Matters is Dr. Corrine Engelman, Director of the Graduate Programs in Population Health and Epidemiology, also a Genetic Epidemiologist and Vice Chair at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health in the Department of Population Health Science. She studies complex diseases in the context of aging and genetics. In her research, she examines disease risk from both genetic and environmental perspectives, what people often refer to as nature versus nurture. Dr. Engelman, welcome to Dementia Matters. Thank you. Today we are going to talk about genetic risk and protective factors for Alzheimer's disease. Now before I get into my questions, I want to remind our listeners that while there are slight semantic differences between genes, genetics, and DNA, people generally use the terms interchangeably, which is what you'll probably hear us do today. So basically, when we talk about genes or DNA, we are talking about our genetic blueprint, the molecular recipe that defines or influences our eye color, height, nose, shape, and even our susceptibility to certain diseases. Right, and actually, while eye color might be um, a hard and fast rule, something like height, for example, is, is actually very complex and can be influenced by multiple genetic factors, um, and then also by environmental factors as well. And that's why you see some children who end up being taller than their parents. That's right. Because it's, mu- it's much more complicated than just your genes ending up di- dictating what you're going to look like. That's right. So, Dr. Engelman, can you tell us about the genetic influences on a person's risk for Alzheimer's disease? Yeah, there are a handful of genetic mutations that are very rare, but have a strong effect on a person's risk for Alzheimer's disease. These mutations are are generally the result uh, generally result in a younger age of onset in Alzheimer's disease. Um, But most of the cases of Alzheimer's disease are caused by a mix of genetic factors with smaller effect and also environmental factors. Uh, One genetic variant, the APOE gene, um, has a a variant called E4, and this can increase a person's risk for Alzheimer's disease, but it does not guarantee that the person will go on to develop Alzheimer's. And oftentimes we think about genetic risk and we separate those who have, quote, early onset or diagnosed before the age of 65 and then late onset, which I would see in my clinic. And APOE tends to be more often in late onset, but there are other genes that are affecting people in early onset. Is that right? That's correct. And the, um, the, the age, as you know, is kind of artificial. Um, so there are... Um, a handful of genes, there are three that are very well established, um, and then a couple of others that tend to have an earlier age of onset. Could be as early as 40s, 50s, or 60s, but even could be as late as the 70s. So, um, and it depends on the variant that you have in one of those genes. Some will result in an earlier age of onset, some a little bit later. And I think that's good for our audience to hear too, because we are so fixated on the age of of diagnosis and of course in clinic that's what we deal with but it is good to know that frankly that's just 
not made up per se, but that's not relevant to the genes themselves. Right. Yeah, that's right. And it is kind of an artificial distinction that we make. There's some a little bit of a gray area, basically. Yeah. Now, are there also genes that protect against Alzheimer's disease or at least reduce the risk for Alzheimer's disease? Yeah, there are. I mean, one genetic variant is actually in that ApoE gene, and it's the E2 allele, and that one is provides protection against Alzheimer's. But there are also other uh, genes that have been found to protect against Alzheimer's risk. And how do you determine if a gene or a set of genes has an impact on a disease like Alzheimer's disease? Yeah, so we study people who um, we, who have or do not have Alzheimer's, um, and we look for genetic variants that are more common in the individuals who have Alzheimer's than they are in those who do not end up developing Alzheimer's. Once you get a signal, does that help us figure out potential mechanisms as to why some people will develop the disease? It does. And actually, in, in the last um, five to ten years, we've learned a ton about the potential additional pathways to Alzheimer's disease. For example, cholesterol metabolism, um, inflammation. Uh, so really, these genetic findings are helping us learn about the biology of Alzheimer's. How do we know if it is one gene, such as ApoE, or a variety of genes that come together to increase or decrease someone's risk? So again, I think that for the early onset forms of Alzheimer's, it's more likely that it is just one gene. Um, that would be pretty common for it to be one gene. Whereas for the later onset forms, I think it probably is more likely a, a mix of different genes coming together to influence our risk. And genes can sort of counter each other. So you could have, for instance, an ApoE4 that increases risk, but then somewhere else, a, a gene that helps reduce inflammation, and therefore they're not working together. They're actually, one's helping, one's hurting. Right, right. And um, there is some work in the field to develop genetic scores for a person's risk. This is something that is really being done in, in some other fields like breast cancer and cardiovascular disease and something that's starting to be done in, for Alzheimer's also. So it's possible that in the future, we'll be able to kind of uh, add together all the effects of different genes across the whole genome and know someone's genetic risk. And I think not only would that be helpful in research and clinical care, but I think from the perspective of the person worried it would be nice to know that while you have this one risk, you also have some other things going in, in your favor, and so maybe it's not as bad as you thought it was. That's right. Is it reasonable to think, then, that there are other important genes that influence one's risk of Alzheimer's disease that we simply haven't found yet? I think it is. Um, I think that those will probably end up being less common in the population, uh, but they are still important for biology of the disease in general. Can the genes themselves help us determine possible causes, like you said, cholesterol, inflammation, but other things that haven't been discussed even 10 years ago? Um, yeah, I, I think that we're getting there. Um, I, uh, there's still a lot that's unknown in this area, but, but I think that we're moving in that direction. And how much can our environment or our lifestyle habits affect these genetic risks? 
So again, it's unknown exactly how much, but there there has there's some um, preliminary findings that um, indicate that, and, and one of them is a study that was done here at the ADRC in collaboration with Dr. Ozioma Okonkwo, um, that that we can probably negate some of the risk due to APOE and and other genes in the cholesterol metabolism pathway um, by being physically active. Um, so there's there's some interesting results that are coming out on this. And I anticipate more and more people are looking at genetic risk and these lifestyle interventions. Definitely. In fact, there are some, some bigger groups that are um, forming risk scores with respect to behavioral factors that are modifiable, um, and then also looking at how that might modify these genetic risk scores that I talked about. So um, my group is, is working on that, and there are other groups that are working on that. So I think that there will be some exciting findings coming out in the next couple of years on that. And are you doing your genetic testing all through blood samples, or how are you analyzing these things? Most of it is through blood, if, if we have that, and, and we usually do. Um, sometimes we use saliva. Um, it's an easier way if we have a participant who has Alzheimer's disease and, and um, we can get saliva um, through their caregiver. Um, we can also use the banked brains through the ADRC if uh, an individual is deceased, but we have maybe we're studying some of their family members, so we've done that as well. And what kind of machines are you using in order to make these kinds of observations? Yeah, so my lab doesn't actually do that work. Um, we are either um, using, there's a biotechnology center on campus that we have worked with, um, and sometimes we're working with um, international or, or national groups, collaborations with the National Institutes of Health, um, sending it to some of their labs. So it really is a team. Yes. Wow. Yes. And it used to be that people only learned about genetic factors for Alzheimer's disease if they underwent genetic testing in their doctor's office or in a research study. But a few years ago, companies that specialize in at-home ancestry genetic testing started offering these health-related trait reports and even these health predisposition reports. Now, what can these reports tell people about the risk for Alzheimer's disease? Right. So one of the most popular companies is 23andMe, um, and they have gotten approval to do um, some health testing. One of them is with Alzheimer's disease, um, which was surprising to me because it's not recommended, actually, that you do um, testing, genetic testing, um, but they're doing it. And um, the result that they, the only gene that they test on is APOE, and they only test on the E4 allele. So they only give you results for your increased risk due to E4, but not the protective effect of E2, not the early onset mutations, and not any other genetic mutations or genetic variants that would provide um, protection or risk. So it's very limited. So it's sort of an incomplete picture. Yes. So even, and I, and I appreciate they have approval, so they're not breaking any rules That's here, right. but it's such a complex process that we might be missing out on things when we when we talk to people about their genetic risk. That's right. It's a very incomplete story, um, but it's 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 all it's it's what that company is doing, and I I believe there are others that are probably also using that incomplete picture as well. And I must tell you, in clinic, I, there is a demand for people to want to know their genetic risk, but I don't think it's fully clear that 
we don't have all of the answers yet. And so I can see a demand for, for this information. But do you think if we are to learn our genetic risk, even whatever information we have, that there really should be some sort of genetic counseling afterwards? Absolutely. I, I definitely think that, that most people in the field feel that that is um, preferred. And in fact, the recommendation is that if you are going to um, get genetic testing for Alzheimer's, that you do um, do so with a genetic counselor being involved through the whole process. What about inflammation? Because again, people will often think, well, yeah, I got inflammation in my joints. Is that going to translate to my brain? Right, and so the the cells that are the the types of tissue that and the cells that help with inflammation in the brain are a little bit different than the ones that we have in the rest of our body, and um, so we one of the um, genes that has been discovered recently is called TREM2, and um, that is thought to help with the immune response in the brain. Um, but again, we're still really learning. Um, more about about the role of TREM2 and, and how it helps kind of fight um, or, or work with the immune system in the brain. And then another thought that comes to mind, aging is a big risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. Have we found any genetic risks that just are either too active or not active enough when it comes to a person's aging genes in the brain? Yeah, and again, this is, you know, I, I really focus on Alzheimer's disease, but there are studies that are being done in people who age very healthy, um, you know, living to be 100 or more. And those studies are really uh, giving us some interesting results of just general healthy aging. Because it seems very clear that, it, you know, to address something as complicated as Alzheimer's disease, we really need a team. We need multiple people looking at different aspects of our genes, the environment, and aging, and, and disease. That it isn't going to be just one thing. It's going to be multiple things with multiple pathways. Right. That's right. And, um, you know, there's, as you know, there's um, information or, or more research coming out that vascular, there's a, you know, vascular component. And so that's another... Um, another area, but yes, it's it's very complicated. <laughs> so in closing, I want to ask, over the course of your research career, what advice can you offer to our listeners about taking their destiny into their own hands in regards to Alzheimer's disease? How much is environmental? I know you can't give me a specific answer, but what kinds of things do we have control over that may help us prevent Alzheimer's disease or delay its onset? Right, so um, for late onset Alzheimer's disease, maybe about half of the factors are environmental. Um, and so um, there are things that we can do to either prevent Alzheimer's or to at least delay the onset. Um, and even for the early onset forms, um, there are probably things that you can do to at least delay the onset. And the nice thing is that these are things that are also helpful for other out health outcomes. So, you know, things like a more healthy diet, being more physically active, um, you know, these are things that are good for us for other outcomes as well. So, Well, I'd like to thank you for being on the show today, and we do hope to have you back once you've learned more information. Thank you very much. 
Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. The Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center combines academic, clinical, and research expertise from the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and the Geriatric Research Education and Clinical Center of the William S. Middleton Memorial Veterans Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. It receives funding from private, university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes of Health for Alzheimer's Disease Centers. This episode was produced by Rebecca Wazaleski and edited by Abishir Adin. Our musical jingle is Cases to Rest by Blue Dot Sessions. Check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. If you have any questions or comments, email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.